good morning, uh, Dr. Kabani, CEO and Registrar of uh, Medical Schemes at the Council for Medical Schemes. Uh, you've had um, an interesting talk at the BHF uh, conference 2023. Perhaps we could start with you um, just in summary points, the key take-home points from your presentation today. Yeah, thanks for the invite and, and morning. Um, my presentation was around uh, the transformation towards uh, patient-centered care. And I was doing that presentation from a regulator's perspective. As you know, our mandate, you know, that sits in Section 7 of the Medical Schemes Act has got the primary point there that talks to us being able to protect member interests at all times. Now, now, when you look at that particular clause, it talks directly to, you know, promoting a people or patient-centered type of care. And often people do not understand what we mean by beneficiary or member interests. But in my view, this extends to the quality of uh, services that they get, the health outcomes. It talks to financial risk protection. It talks to good governance at scheme level. It also talks to value for money for patients. And it also talks to the absence of fraud, waste, and abuse. So all those key elements, you know, are what ties this topic to our mandate as the council. Yeah. So uh, I think I elaborated also on uh, windows of opportunity that I believe, you know, industry can collaborate with us. I reminded everybody that we still have a medical schemes act that is under uh, the process of being amended. And that in itself is a window of opportunity for us to put our heads together and see if we can't add those elements that would make that act more, you know, uh, patient-centric. I've also talked about uh, the current PMB review, which is aimed at introducing a primary healthcare element to it. Yeah. Now, when you introduce disease prevention and health promotion, you you invariably touch on, you know, being pe person-centered, unlike the current set of PMBs that are mainly hospice-centric. Yeah. So, so I think that's important. There's ongoing work that we've been doing, you know, for the past five years of defining the PMBs, you know, ensuring that members and providers understand you know, members' entitlements and limitations, as well as the interpretation of what is a PMB and what is not. And we've been publishing these definitions over time. And we're just saying people need to look at that and make sure that they implement those uh, recommendations that are coming from there. But uh, we believe there are many other areas where there could be collaboration for an example, you know, the, the fraud, waste and abuse initiatives that was spearheading in the industry, all the monies that would be saved would basically be directed to patient care. Yeah, but, but those are just a few of the initiatives amongst many that I've, I did talk about. Yeah, it's uh, 
quite quite a load. It's it's quite a lot, I think, to go through. Uh, you know, as part of a process or a journey for for the industry, how do you see the the journey unfolding? I think the one thing you touched on uh, there's obviously some of the structural changes that might be required in terms of delivering services. There's uh, perhaps some legislative review, or maybe maybe even without legislative review, some of um, uh, regu- regulatory amendments that may be required to facilitate and enable these changes. And then thirdly, the collaboration at industry level. You know, could you maybe touch on, you spoke on the first element, but maybe on the two, element two and three. So firstly, um, the amendments to the regulation that might be that might be required. And thirdly, how, how do you see the industry, you know, um, playing a role working with, with the regulator going forward. Let me just start by saying that, uh, you know, since I've been in the industry since uh, 2016, I've had people talk about alternative remuneration, you know, models or mechanisms, but I'm not seeing that gaining traction, you know, at scheme level, at administrator level. And currently there's no piece of legislation in my view that stands in the way of that. True. So I would really love to see the industry taking initiative on those areas that do not need elaborate, you know, legislative changes for, for those things to be put in place. Because let's agree, if, if we all decide to move from fee for service to these other models, there will be savings. We'll monitor uh, quality better. Mm. I think, uh, you know, we, we are prepared to participate in whatever initiative, but we're just saying some of these things could be led by the industry itself. Okay. Yeah. And um, so, some of these are ongoing, uh, you know, initiatives, like the PMP definitions, the scripts that we publish. Those are highly consultative processes. We, we never publish a, a script without having, you know, consulted the industry, at least in two cycles. Mm. So in a sense, one would expect that once we've updated, you know, a definition, and because we have consulted widely, that people would simply implement that. But we see people still challenging even those definitions, which I think for me is is problematic. Yeah. 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 Um. Yeah. Okay. So, and and then there's obviously the ongoing interventions on fraud, waste, and waste abuse. abuse. Yes. Because we we've made quite a lot of traction, you know, on that front, and and I suspect that we're not saying a lot as an industry about the ground that we've covered. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've gone through the definitions. We've got a charter. Yeah. We now have agreed on the, you know, code of, code of uh, conduct principles, and we're moving into the terrain now of of SOPs, and and how to define, you know, a fraudulent claim, etc. But I don't think people are appreciating, you know, w- w- what has been achieved already over the course of years. Yeah, and and I think we can just accelerate, because because my own contention is. 
if we reduce fraud, waste, and abuse, we, we put money back into the pockets of, you know, the members of schemes. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of collaboration with the industry, oftentimes, I guess there's two, two ways you could do that. One is the regulator takes a view on an issue and then puts it out and consults, or the industry works on proposals which then come through to the regulator for consideration. Which which of those do you have a preference in terms of, you know, uh, approach as the regulator? You know, as a regulator, we, we've got an open mind. We, we don't say we'll only entertain a proposal only if, if it came through us. We are prepared to listen to any proposal that members of the industry might have. Mm. We are prepared to create a platform for for bringing in other parties. Yeah. We are prepared to support if it's in line with, uh, you know, our regulatory mandate. And um, maybe just while we are on that, the the process as far as the amendment bill is concerned, um, how far is that? Do you see a time frame, um, or do you have an idea of you know, how how open is that window uh, for for further any further uh, contribution from industry and from the regulator side? You will recall that the Minister of Health then released the two bills, the NHI. And the medical schemes act in in 2018 i think it was around july at the same time yeah and and the understanding was that these are being placed open for public scrutiny and inputs but at some point we're told the nhi bill will be given preference and and that was more to address some of the logistical issues because we understood that the nhi bill in its implementation it needs to take into account the various other acts that are out there. Sure. So it wouldn't help to fast track the Medical Schemes Act. But we are of the view that now that the NHI bill is at an advanced stage of parliamentary engagement. Yeah. That if if we put pressure as an industry, we, we, we can have that Medical Schemes Act amendment discussions immediately after Parliament has dealt with the NHI. Yes, it might mean us taking a few steps back, yeah. looking at the previous proposals, perhaps updating them. And the window of opportunity that I'm talking about is let's look at all those inputs that we wanted to make into the Act and dis make a determination of whether they are patient-centric or not. Yeah. Because this is an opportunity. I can imagine several industry players saying, Dr. Kavani, you, you are saying this and we, we, we actually intend to, to hold you to that promise. Uh, we actually want to review or come back with, you know, to, to, to those discussions. And, but in terms of a, a timeline, I guess, if, if just talking to you, to the sequence now, you're saying if the NHI bill is priority, that probably takes us into 2024, I guess, from the parliamentary process uh, point of view, which would then mean uh, the medical schemes amendment bill process stays open for a little while longer beyond beyond 2024. 
certainly. I, th- I think the, the 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 key issue here, yeah, is how do you put it on the agenda of the legislature? Yeah, because when it's absent from the timetable or the table for for discussion, the, then the likelihood of it being discussed, you know, mm-hmm. diminishes. Yeah. If 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 there's agreement between ourselves and the industry that the act needs to be prioritized, what would even fast track it is if we're able to sit perhaps in one gathering and say this is how this act should look like. Mm. If there are areas of disagreement, we identify these, we have a pointed discussions yeah. with a view of clarifying those. But I can tell you, if 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 the en- the entities that we regulate together with ourselves are the ones knocking at the door of the minister, then the parliamentary process should really be a fast tracked one. Yeah, yeah. Because okay. all of the, you know, areas of disagreement would have been dealt with outside. Yeah, and and I think people need to agree that you 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 can't have a perfect act. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Yeah. In my view, if we've got something that looks like it can improve the effectiveness and efficiencies in the industry, and it's 80% there, mm-hmm. perhaps we, we could go and say, okay, let, let's implement this 80, whilst we're determining how to to deal with the remaining 20%. Yeah. But it shouldn't be that those areas where there's disagreement are holding back the entire process. I often think of, you know, just in terms of whether it's a, a policy stance or how regulation then supports, you know, um, the health framework. I try and always break it into at least three big components. So one is how do we provide access? Um, now I'm moving away from just medical schemes, so I'm thinking, you know, South Africa. How do you expand access? Because we know we've got the medical scheme covered population. Um, we've got, uh, you know, people who are reliant on the public service uh, to provide uh, healthcare, healthcare services. And you do have that middle. So technically, I guess all of us have access to the public sector. Uh, the challenge is the operational capacity on the public sector side. So I think there's that. Yeah. Um, and then there's a, you know, the middle piece, some say, you know, some studies say three and a half million people, some say five million people who are uh, employed, which means technically they can afford to pay something towards cover and take the burden of the state. However, they can't afford your typical medical aid plan. You know, how do you see coverage, I guess, in two fronts. One is on the financial coverage in terms of uh, uh, insurance cover, medical scheme cover, etc. And side by side with that, do you have any thoughts on operational reforms that are required to facilitate that? By that I mean, so if we say some people will provide, will, will have cover through medical aid, it's easy because you say, okay, you have private hospitals, you have whatever. Some schemes have contracts with the public sector, with provinces. Um, so there you're talking, okay, you've got your cover that covers the financial element and operationally this is how you access care. 
how do you see that playing out in the in 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 the journey? Because I, I suppose the NHI bill doesn't switch on tomorrow, right? There's there's another I, I don't know how many years in between. How do you see the balance between you know growing access in terms of financial risk protection and coverage? but also ensuring sufficient coverage in terms of operational capacity between the public and the private sector. Yeah, that that's uh, it's, it's a big question. It's, it's complex, <laughs> I know. And it is complex. Let, let, let me start and, by and saying... And asking for, uh, you know, I guess we can't wave a magic wand, and but we all have some thoughts on how it might play out. Yeah. No, let me start by saying that you're aware that there's a process yeah. of trying to determine whether medical schemes should be allowed to introduce an option for the low-income earners. Yes. And also a process that will determine the fate of the primary insurance products yeah. that exist through the demarcation regulation and through an exemption provided by the CMS. Yeah. So so I don't want to get into that space. Yeah, sure. Because right now we're busy finalizing a process where we've collected all the information and comments from the industry and players and we're packaging it for consideration by the Minister of Health. So okay. so I don't want to pronounce myself there before those things have, have reached their conclusion. Mm-hmm. And and I think all of us must just be patient because we're at the tail end of of the story. But if I can try and and and, and answer your question, if if you look at uh, Section thirty three of the NHI Bill, it basically says that there will be a point at which the Minister of Health will make a determination that there's full implementation of the NHI. And therefore, schemes must play a certain role. That that tells me that it it's not just going to be an overnight thing. Surely, yeah. In other words, he he'll be looking at you, you know that uh, cube mm-hmm. that talks about coverage, coverage. the talks about the funding, yeah. and and the benefits. It's funding benefits and population coverage. Yes, yeah. And that at some point. Whilst looking at how the services have been extended into the NHI, he mm. will then say, looking at these parameters, I believe that, you know, that Section 33 needs to be activated. Sure. We've, we've also had the previous ministers and even the current one, including Treasury, saying this is not going to be a big bang approach. Mm. It's going to be phased in. And the pace will be determined by the availability of resources. So, so when you put those things together, you, you get a sense that if, if, if schemes start out with a certain standard package, for an example, and out of that package, the NHI interfaced in manner starts up implementing those benefits, mm. there will be a point at which now what sits in the NHI resembles that basic package. Mm. Okay. And, and you could say theoretically th- that would be the point where that 
Section 33 kicks in here. In my view, because it's a phased-in thing, I think it gives everyone an opportunity of managing the transition between now and then. At that point, whenever it is. Yes. In other words, for schemes, they just need to understand that they cannot provide the current services and continue to do so even under the NHI environment. There will be a transition. The services may look different. The schemes in terms of their structuring may look different, including the CMS. CMS doesn't envisage itself operating and looking the way it does into that uh, environment. When schemes change function, shape, we will also change. Mm. So, so, so in a sense, uh, I just think without being specific here, that what has been missing in the debate is the steps within that big yes. decision. It's, it's how do we start yes. and how do you manage within that transition? Because yeah. I think the vision is quite clear from the bill. Initially, the white paper, but now I think the bill articulates that vision. Um, the challenge is, what do you do today to build to that vision, and how do you manage um, the, the 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 transition? Yeah, yeah. I must say, it's and and you would have, you know, listened to the presentations to the portfolio committee on health that there's great anxiety. Um, about about both about the transition and the you know what people see as almost like an end point to say at some point the switch is flipped and certain elements of the health system as we see as we know it today disappear and cease to exist. How how would you say? I mean, what do we say to 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 calm the nerves? Um, you know, on that on that score. And how do we find ways to, to, to assure the players in the health market that they will, they will still have a role to play and a contribution to make towards healthcare in South Africa going into the future? That's another difficult one. But uh, my, my own thoughts around this thing is if government decides to, on its own, without any collaboration and communication mm. to the rest of the stakeholders, push ahead, mm. it will be faced with legal challenges that may block this thing for an indeterminate period. Yeah. And if government also says, let, let the private industry decide what they want to do here, you know, in that space. Yeah. And then, takes a step back here. The the vested interest within the industry might actually mean that the reform gets moved in a different path. So in a sense, I think what, what's going to eventually take place here is that the success will be based on all the parties coming together. Yeah. Mapping out these transitional small steps, yes, agreeing on the big milestones, and in terms of the timing, yeah, because once once you've got those things mapped out in a journey, 
it becomes easy to know how far you are from the destination. Yeah. Whether you're progressing at the rate. And and it becomes much more manageable. So the anxiety should really uh you know, be managed through that process of engagement and, and determining this transitional plan. Yeah. yeah. Because in the absence of a plan, you will have that anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So maybe just before we wrap up, back to medical schemes. But um, on governance, maybe we can end on 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 that point. What are your thoughts? Um, what what are you happy about in terms of medical schemes governance? And what keeps you awake at night on the same issue? You know, if you could maybe just in a few bullets summarize, you know, what are you actually as the regulator quite satisfied about it when you look at the industry in terms of governance of schemes? And what what are you still concerned about in terms of, you know, where there where there may be gaps that the regulator perceives need to be to be bridged? Yeah, listen, uh, I think we, we are regulating quite a, a sizable uh, industry. Mm. About seventy-four schemes, yeah. a number of administrators, etc. And and let me be the first one to say that not all the schemes and administrators are keeping me awake at, uh, awake at night. That's good to hear. There, there are some of those that you know one can just proceed and look at other challenges without really being worried. We've also seen the industry itself do very well in terms of uh, maintaining the 25% overall solvency. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, they're sitting now at almost 40%. At, at industry level. Yeah, on average. Yeah. So, which is higher than our 25% benchmark. So we don't think the solvency is a major problem in the industry. There may be one or two schemes that we need to monitor closely but overall, I think industry has done well. Thirdly, I think industry did so much well, even under COVID, mm. through the collaboration that they, that we had, you know, with ourselves, where we gave members, you know, additional benefits, additional exemptions to do certain things in mm. order to to survive COVID, and and it, for me, it, it just showed that that schemes and administrators are quite resilient so so in a sense even when you look at the scheme numbers mm. we've set with almost a stagnant amount here and and the prediction was that you know through covid there would be a drastic loss of members mm. and and that has not happened hasn't yeah, yeah. in fact we're seeing a reversal of the trend where there's a slight increase in in the overall membership we're still trying to determine, you know, the root causes of that. Yes. In the area of uh, member contributions through COVID, I think we've got excellent cooperation. We're able to keep those numbers down. Mm. And up to now, we appreciate that schemes have amassed uh, resource, uh, reserves and that up to now they've used them judiciously, w which we appreciate yeah, but obviously there are areas of challenge. Yeah, 
where you find a board of trustees not complying with basic requirements, like making sure that an AGM happens at an appropriate time, where procedures leading to an AGM are flawed, where, you know, we get complaints of uh, corruption and fraud within a scheme or an administrator. But what concerns us most here is, is when we get these complaints from members that are clinical and urgent, and you just get a sense that the administrator in schemes are fighting this member simply because they've got the resources. That's where we believe that, you know, schemes could do better. Okay. Even when we've made rulings on specific issues, you find schemes still coming back and challenging the same rule using the same circumstances. Whereas it would save scheme monies, you know, instead of hiring expensive lawyers to fight the same case, if we just accepted that these rulings could be seen as uh, precedents, yeah. if you wish, and actually guide the current decision-making. Also concerned that... Uh, We've been trying to move schemes away from curatorships because we thought if we introduce the statutory managers who essentially is still expected to work with the principal office uh, as well as the board of trustees, you know, in managing the affairs of the scheme for that transition where yeah. there are difficulties, that that has not taken off yet in the manner that we expected, but maybe it's still too early to say. But we wouldn't really want to be seen as that regulator that did the slightest inconvenience. We invoke the, the, the harshest form of uh, regulation, like a curatorship. Because yeah. we think these curatorships are necessary, they're costly, and, you know, they... they, they, they they don't provide immediate relief for scheme members. Yeah. So if you can find interventions that are cost-effective, quick in terms of turnaround, I, I think we would be would all be better off. Okay. Thank you for those points. I mean, maybe one, um, just one off to end off. I mean, back to patient-centered care and quality. Maybe not so much on the on the detail, but I guess one thing is um, if you look at, you know, how we fund care, there's a framework, there's a clear kind of legislative framework, regulatory framework in terms of how we provide access. We've had some, you know, discussion about that. On quality and back to, you know, patient-centered care, how do you envisage a, a framework that perhaps even if it's not you know in its final form but is there some kind of thought on a, a quality framework that could be adopted uh, and I guess universally you know public and private sector in terms of uh, you know certain structural requirements uh, healthcare processes and outcomes uh, at a high level. I mean, how do you see, you've got across the regulatory scan, uh, landscape, you've got the medical schemes, healthcare providers, some have regulatory authorities like the Pharmacy Council, HPCSA, 
uh, the hospitals don't necessarily have that. But how do you see a, a basic start in terms of a quality framework that that covers the the entire industry? Just for a start, you know, there's something to start with. Not in, not not necessarily the end point, but is there some point where you'd say, can we start at this point and through these collaborations between the regulators and the industry, we can have a quality framework for for the environment? Listen, in my view, I, th- I think there's sufficient data f- coming from schemes yeah. that tells us about the the inputs, you know, how many doctors were used in, in a certain treatment, yeah. how much medicines was used, you know, how many people were diagnosed with a certain condition. I think there's sufficient data on that. What, what's lacking, it's, it's more the process but, kind of yeah. information. That, that says to us, um, once we, we've done an HIV test and we've looked at the viral count, w- what do we do now to, to keep it low mm-hmm. and, and the patient not to complicate? That data is scarce. Okay. We, we're also not moving to, to the gold standard of actually looking at the outputs the outcomes and the, and the impacts. We we know that there may be so many diabetics on treatment, but we don't get a sense of readmissions because of poor control. Mm-hmm. Okay, we we don't get a sense of the complications, like amputations, because of poor control. Sure, and certainly, we 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 don't see the the mortality and health outcomes data. Mm-hmm. So in my view, I think we, we are sitting in the, you know, the input box. We, we could shift things forward by starting to record the processes. Okay. And, and there are low-hanging fruits, even in the outcomes and outputs. All that we need to do is collect that information. Mm. And, and in my mind, I, I don't even think we need to go the length of Comparing, you know, schemes, managed care, you know, uh, groupings in terms of their own outcomes. We we could, you know, de-anonymize them. We could ano- anonymize them, yes, and and publish them, you know, to say this is how the picture looks like. Of affairs, yeah, yeah, and then as people buy into that, we we can then have a conversation mm. of of. How many of you are prepared to to claim your victory? Yeah, because because I think also it's terrible for an entity to do great work and not get any credit, especially if it's going to help members to make intelligent choices. You know, if you've got this managed care group dealing with HIV and also this one, but you can see here the care is better, outcomes are better. Yeah. I think it's ethically responsible to start saying to the member, maybe make your choice. And I guess in terms of the scheme purchasing services, then they the contracting. They, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so I think it's a space that 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 we can move into. Yeah. But but what we may need to do is not also to just collect data indiscriminately. We could look at specific, you know, data lines that we want to watch. 
mm. in terms of input process outputs and outcomes yeah and and and, and we can build on that yeah sure of course i mean yeah. it's always a, a, a journey yeah mm. okay thank you for those thoughts right i don't thank know you. if you have any 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 final thoughts uh, as we close no no thoughts <laughs> okay thank you've said enough thank you <laughs>